Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of Mark, chapter 14. Kids, again, are remaining in the sanctuary here. No children's church this morning because it's Communion Sunday. Um, So we're looking at Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 25. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. There's uh, some white ones and blue ones. You can get that out. This passage on page 496. 496. Mark chapter 14. So the year was uh, 1529. The city was Marburg, Germany. The event or the occasion was a gathering of the um, a number of reformers, kind of leading reformers at the time. This is just kind of after the, the Reformation where uh, some leaders in the church were breaking off from the Catholic church, and there was this event in Marburg, Germany, where the Reformers came together, and the purpose of their gathering was to seek unity with one another, to try to get on the same page doctrinally. And so, a lot of big names from the Reformation were there, Zwingli and Melanchthon, Martin Luther was there. And as they had this discussion, it kind of went on for a while, a couple days, and um, they found themselves in agreement on 14 articles. Total agreement, 14 doctrinal points or articles that are in agreement. And then they get to the 15th article, and they reach an impasse, a sticking point. They, they can't agree. Here's an opportunity to get these leading reformers together doctrinally, and they come to this one point, and they can't agree, and the matter had to do with the Lord's Supper. So it was Martin Luther who was really uh, the one that had the biggest problem because when he saw in the Scriptures that Jesus held up the bread and said, this is my body, what Luther thought was that that must be literal in some sense, that the physical body of Jesus must be present when the Lord's Supper is observed. But others, and Zwingli in particular, said, no, we don't necessarily have to read that literally, Martin. Um, Perhaps this is symbolic. It's a symbol of Jesus' presence. Well, Luther was outraged by this. And so one night uh, before the next morning's conversations were to continue, Luther got a table and he got a piece of chalk and he wrote on the table, this is my body, and brought that table into a room and covered it with a velvet cloth. And he was anticipating what he was going to be asked this next day. And it was Zwingli and came to him and said, show me proof that when Jesus says, this is my body, he means his physical body. And Luther, for some reason thinking this would be persuasive, (laughs) pulled that velvet cloth off the table and revealed these four words, this is my body, as if to say, Zwingli, it is just as obvious as these four words written on the table that when Jesus says, this is my body, he means his physical body. (laughs) They couldn't come to an agreement. The discussion stalled. Zwingli was in tears because here was an opportunity for the Reformers to get together, and they couldn't do it. It was a, a tremendous opportunity lost. 1529 Marburg, Germany. Now, I happen to agree with Zwingli at least 
to the extent that he disagreed with Luther on this point. I think Luther was wrong. And those in the Reformed uh, the Presbyterian community uh, would be in agreement on that, I think, largely. Luther was right about a lot of things, <laughs> and we're grateful for uh, his witness, but he was wrong on this point. I believe he was wrong. Well, there was a guy named Jay Gresham Machen who wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism that I recommend to everybody, very important book. But in that book, <clears throat> he, he wrote this, and he's writing about this event in Marburg, Germany in 1529. And Machen says this, Luther was wrong about the supper, but not nearly so wrong as he would have been if, being wrong, he had said to his opponent, brothers, this matter is trivial, and it makes really very little difference what a man thinks about the table of the Lord. Such indifference would have been far more deadly than all the divisions between the branches of the church. Indifference about doctrine makes no difference heroes of the faith. So Machen's point is this, <clears throat> Luther might have been wrong as he was interpreting Jesus' words about the bread, but here is one place where he was right, and that is in affirming the importance of the Lord's Supper, in considering this a matter of crucial, essential importance to everyone who calls himself or herself a follower of Christ. No Christian should be careless, trivial, and flippant about coming to the Lord's table. Well, today's text that we're about to read here in just a moment is the text from which all of this disagreement and debate has sprung, this depiction of the Last Supper, Jesus' Last Supper with His disciples that set forth a pattern for us here that um, shows how we should observe the, the Eucharist, sometimes people call it, or the Lord's Supper, or communion, a number of different names. But this, this, this sacrament that has been celebrated by the church, observed by the church for over 2,000 years. I mean, th th try to think of something that some group has been doing for 2,000 years. It's hard to think of many examples. But here's one, a ritual celebrated for over 2,000 years. That's what's described here in Mark 14. So if you're able to stand, please do that. Let me read this text to us. <clears throat> Mark 14, starting with verse 12, <clears throat> it says this, <clears throat> And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the masters of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. <clears throat> and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed." 
It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we, we do actually need you greatly to understand your word. Um, and so we plead with you for insight and understanding that you'd open our eyes and open our ears to behold wonderful things in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> So, in God's providence, it just so happens that Mark 14 falls on Communion Sunday. Um, I actually didn't really work it out that way, it just kind of worked out, and so grateful for that. We celebrate Communion here once a month at New Life on the uh, third Sunday uh, of each month. And so, <clears throat> today I want to try to answer this question, how can we get the most out of the Lord's Supper? As we come to the table once a month, how can we get the most out of this? And so there's a lot in this passage for us to understand. So as we think of Jesus in the Supper, first of all, what I want to show you is this, that we must understand the Lord's Supper's Old Testament significance. We've got to understand the significance of the Lord's Supper as it is presented to us in, in the Old Testament. You know, the best way to understand the New Testament is to understand the Old. If we don't understand the Old, we don't really get the New. Our understanding of the new will be impoverished if we ignore the Old Testament. <clears throat> and so, we're going to consider this first of all. So, we know that efforts are underway to, to kill Jesus, right? We saw that at the very beginning of chapter 14. They were now seeking to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him, verse 1 tells us. So, these uh, disciples and Jesus, they're under pressure. There are attempts to take Jesus' life. <laughs> but it just so happens now that, that Passover has arrived. And they kind of realize this here in verse 12 and uh, understand that now it is important that they make preparations somehow, even though uh, the chief priests and members of Sanhedrin are seeking to kill Jesus. Like, we, we've got to be good Jews and faithful to God. We've got to uh, prepare for the Passover. And so they ask this question, verse 12. Uh, it says, where will you have us go, Jesus, and prepare for you to eat the Passover? What are we going to do? We've got to celebrate uh, this important holiday. So, you notice that Passover is mentioned many times uh, in, in this, this passage, and uh, what I want to do here is just pause for a moment and just talk about what the Passover is. I mean, some of you might know, some of you might not know, maybe it's the first time you've heard about this, maybe you know it very well, but it, it's important for us to understand the Old Testament significance of Passover in the Old Testament to get what's going on here with the Last Supper. So, how did the Passover come about? Well, <clears throat> if, if you know the Old Testament, you know that one of the most significant, I would say the most significant event in the Old Testament is the Exodus. So that's the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And um, what happened there in the Exodus is that uh, God's people, Israel, had come under the bondage of slavery in the nation of Egypt and they were longing to be freed. Well, God came to a man named Moses, right? Called Moses and said, Moses, you're going to be my instrument for delivering my people. And God told Moses to go and talk to the Pharaoh and tell the Pharaoh to let 
my people go. Free Israel. Well, every time Moses went to the Pharaoh, <clears throat> the Pharaoh declined the request. And so, in response to that, God sent plagues as judgment on Egypt for Pharaoh's unwillingness to do what Moses or what God, through Moses, was asking him to do. So, there's a number of different plagues, and you can read about that in the book of Exodus, but the very last plague that God sent was the worst of them all. And in the very last plague, what God said is that in all of Egypt, the firstborn child in the household is going to die. And I mean every household. God said whether it's the child of the Pharaoh or whether it's the child of, of the slave girl, from the highest to the lowest social class, all of the firstborn children in Egyptian households are going to die. But God offers a provision to Israel. He says that there can be an exception for you, those of you who are Jews, those of you who belong to me. Here's what you can do. And he tells them, if you take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb, kill it, and then eat it together in a meal that evening, and take some of the blood of that lamb, take some of that blood and put it on the outside of your door, on the doorposts, put a little bit of blood out there. And God says, when, when I come, when the judgment comes, when the destroyer comes through Egypt looking for the firstborn to kill, if I see blood on the doorpost, I will pass over. I won't take your firstborn. I'll spare you. I'll show you grace. But in order to show you grace, i got to see the blood. And so that's the provision that, that God offers here. And so, that's, that's what actually happened, but God also commanded that Israel would then commemorate that over the course of their history through this thing called the Passover. And so, um, just to sum it up, this is from Exodus 12, 23 to 27. There's, there's a lot there to read. I'm just taking an excerpt. <clears throat> but it says this, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. You're going to keep doing this. And when your children say to you when they're doing the Passover meal, and they say, what, what do we mean? What, why are we doing this? You're going to say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So that's the Passover. <clears throat> there's going to be judgment for the rebellion of the Egyptians, but there's also going to be grace through the slain of a lamb. Well, we also see this thing in verse 12 mentioned called <clears throat> the Day of Unleavened Bread. And so, that's a, a festival that um, was closely associated with the Passover. It started about the same time or a little bit after the Passover. And this was not just a, a, an evening observance, but this would be a seven-day observance, a week-long observance. And the, the, the significance here of the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, kind of the idea there is that when Israel were in their homes and 
when God prepared then to deliver Israel by you know, going through the Red Sea, right? God parted the waters and they were able to escape Egypt. But when they were getting up and getting ready to go, they had to go in such a hurry that they didn't have time to allow their bread to, to leaven, to rise. And they just had to take their dough and go. And so uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is observed in remembrance of that. So we've got Passover and this Feast of Unleavened Bread. But <laughs> again, what you see here, it's, it's, it's pretty clear, I think, isn't it, the, the connection to the gospel, how, how, how beautiful it is to see these pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. Because if we could just summarize the Passover, we would just say this, that according to God's judgment, somebody's got to die. Because of their rebellion against me, somebody is going to die. But there's, there's always this option. It can either be the child in the house or it can be a lamb. And that lamb can die in the place of the child. The lamb can die as a substitute. And if your faith is in the death of that lamb, if your hope is in the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, God says He will pass over because of the substitute that has been provided in the lamb. And judgment then will not fall on your household. So, all of this informs the, the Last Supper, because as we get here to the Last Supper and Jesus is preparing this meal, what we're seeing here is, is, is another substitute. This is Jesus who John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is Jesus preparing this meal, knowing that He's the one who's going to receive God's judgment. He's the one who's going to die. He's the one who is going to shed blood for those who would trust Him, put their faith in Him. And so, what we see here in the rest of these first few verses is, I think, something quite extraordinary because <clears throat> I don't know what it was like when the Israelites would go after the lamb for slaughter, but I'm guessing if that lamb had any idea what was going to happen, the lamb would probably run away knowing that it was going to die. But that's not Jesus. Jesus knows He's going to die, and He's not running away. I mean, He just displays great courage great intention. He knows what he has to do. And so he sets up all of these details here, you see. He uh, tells the disciples um, in verse 13, he takes two of them and he says, go into the city and uh, a man carrying a jar of water will, will meet you. Now, uh, that would have been unusual because typically carrying a jar of water would have been a, a woman's work. So to see a man carrying water would have been a little bit unusual. But even then, I mean, you've got, depending on various reports, maybe a million people coming to Jerusalem for Passover. So imagine going into a city of a million people and saying, look for a guy with, with, with a, a, you know, a jar of water. Uh, it might be unusual for a guy to hold water, but still, among a million people, that, that's going to be hard to do, but there's something miraculous going on here. We don't know if Jesus made these arrangements earlier or uh, if this is just the sovereignty of God over this situation, probably maybe both. Uh, but in any case, if you see this jar of water being carried by a man, go to him, follow him, wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, uh, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? and he will show you the upper room furnished and ready. So a room furnished in that time, it's not like they've got a widescreen TV and a, you know, a, a kitchen and a microwave, that's not what that means. Furnished, um, furnished just meant there would probably be rugs and carpets on the ground because that's the way they ate then. They, they ate on the floor, and so it will be ready for a meal. It'll be ready for a meal. 
But what Jesus is doing here is he is making plans for his own death. He's not going to the cross unwillingly. He's not going to the cross trying to get away. He's not going as a victim. He's not trapped. He's not trying to escape. He's going to the cross for the joy that is set before him intentionally and making plans for it to happen. And so I think Tim Keller just sums up the, the, the connection between the Passover and the Last Supper here pretty well. Just as the first Passover was observed the night before God redeemed the Israelites from slavery through the blood of the lambs, this Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. So you see the connection here between the Passover and the Last Supper. Now, of course, nobody here needs freedom from the nation of Egypt, right? You don't need liberation from slavery to Egypt, but you do need liberation and deliverance from your sin, and you do need deliverance from the penalty of death, and you do need deliverance from the forces of Satan at work in this world, and that's what Jesus, the Passover lamb, provides for you if you will trust Him as your Savior. So understand the Lord's Supper's Old Testament significance. Well, the second thing to look at is this, that we should prepare for the Lord's Supper with careful self-examination. Prepare for the Lord's Supper with careful self-examination. So, when the Passover would happen, the the lamb would be killed in the afternoon, but it wouldn't be eaten until evening, and so that's why you see here in verse 17, it was evening. And so, Jesus and the twelve, they show up in this upper room that has been prepared for them, and um, they, they begin this meal. And so, we see here in verse 18 that as they were reclining at table and eating. So, I, I can't resist kind of just pointing this out. A very famous depiction of, of the Last Supper is this painting by uh, da Vinci. I'm sure most of you have seen this, probably aware of, of this painting. Uh, this is not what it looked like, <laughs> okay? <clears throat> I mean, there is a table there where the food is on, but notice they're reclining. Again, that would have been customary at the time to kind of recline, lie down on the floor while they were eating. And, of course, they certainly wouldn't all be on one side of the table. (laughs) I understand why he did that, but it's always kind of a little peculiar that they're all on one side. It looks looks crowded over there, doesn't it? It's like, why don't you come around on the other side and you have a little more room? Um, So this is probably not uh, a faithful depiction uh, according to what we know about the customs of the time and even according to uh, this verse. They are reclining at table and eating. And so, you know, they're they're probably enjoying their time of fellowship together, having some good conversation. Um, You know, it's remembering a good thing, God's deliverance of um, Israel from Egypt. And then all of a sudden, Jesus just drops this bomb in the middle of this meeting, says this, this shocking thing. Says in verse 18, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. One of you is going to betray me. And 
Judas is not identified here. We know from the other accounts it was Judas. But, you know, even if you just back up to verses 10 and 11, remember uh, Judas voluntarily went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And um, they were glad, promised to give him money. We know it was 30 pieces of silver, um, which was incidentally about half as much as the woman expended when she poured that perfume and ointment on Jesus from last week's sermon. So for half that amount, it's really not a whole lot of money, but uh, Judas in his, in his greed receives his money. Uh, we know, we know this, is, this is Judas. Judas is the betrayer. But what makes this even worse than we can already tell that it is, is at the end of verse 18, if you just notice that little phrase, one who is eating with me. One is going to betray me who is now eating with me. The reason that is significant is because to, to some extent this is true today, but even more so in, in that culture and in that day, that, that is that eating with somebody was a symbol of friendship and mutual love and affection and trust. And, of course, that applies to the Lord's Supper also, right? I mean, we come to the Supper together. What we're saying is we're, we're unified. We're friends. We love one another. But most of all, what the Lord's Supper tells us is we have friendship with God. That's one of the most wonderful things about coming to this table. Because we eat with people that we're friends with. You don't generally sit down and have a meal with someone with whom you are at odds or with an enemy. I mean, you might sit down to try to work things out, but if you're mad at each other, you're probably not eating together. I mean, Mary and I had this experience a few years ago. We kind of got in a disagreement with somebody, and some feelings were hurt. <clears throat> and by God's grace, uh, apologies were extended, and forgiveness was granted. And the first thing we did is we got together and we had a meal. We had lunch together as a symbol of our reconciliation, of our reunion. And so, <clears throat> that's what makes this even worse. It's not just that Judas is betraying Jesus, it's that Judas betrays Jesus right after having a meal with him. I mean, talk about an act of egregious hypocrisy. Here's Judas playing the part, acting like he's friends with Jesus, when in his heart his desire is to betray him. So, <clears throat> notice how everybody responds. Um, they're all sitting around the table, and they begin to be sorrowful. And one after another, they're asking, verse 19, is it I? Is he talking about me? They're, they're examining themselves. They're taking time to look inward and think about themselves. Could, could I do that? Have I done that? Have I betrayed Jesus somehow? Why would he say this? Be thinking about what did, what did I do? Did I say something to him? And they start thinking about the conversations they'd had, and they're running this through their mind. How, how did I do this? How, how did I sin against Jesus? What did I, how, how did I do something wrong here? This is an important exercise for Christians. Self-examination. Soul-searching. Asking yourself hard questions. We like to put hard questions to the people who have offended us. How often do we spend posing hard questions to ourselves? How did I contribute to this problem? What did I do out of line? That's, that's what's happening here. They're examining themselves. And, of course, this is something that Christians should be doing on a regular basis all the time, but it's especially important that we do this before we come to the table, to ask ourselves soul-searching questions like, have I really been seeking God and His kingdom first? 
Has that characterized my life this last week? Have, uh, have I really been content with whatever God has given me? Or have I been whining and complaining and grumbling? How have I been relating to my families and friends and the people who are closest to me? In my household, how do I speak to my spouse? How do I speak to my roommate? How do I speak to my children? Is it curt and sharp and cold and angry? Examine yourself. What, how has this been in your life? How's, how's my prayer time been? How's my time in the Word been? Have I been neglecting these things? These are questions, soul-searching questions. They're the kinds of questions that the disciples are asking themselves, and they're the kinds of questions that all of us are going to ask ourselves in a moment when we come to the table and take a time of silent preparation. We're going to soul-search and then confess those sins to God and look to Jesus for forgiveness, which He freely grants to anybody who will come to Him in that spirit. But we have another thing here to consider in verse 21, very uh, important verse. Verse 21, it's a little bit of a tangent here, but notice what Jesus says. Uh, In verse 20, He indicates that the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me is the one who will betray Him, and in other accounts we know that's Judas. But in verse 21, then He says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What this passage does, this little verse, just taps into a huge issue that Christians talk about, and um, it's the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And theologians have spilled a lot of ink over this, and denominations uh, are are divided over this issue. I mean, the the question basically is like this. If God really is sovereign, He's decreed all things, He's planned all things from before the foundation of the world, something that most Christians will at least give lip service to, then how can we really be free, responsible people? I mean, if God has planned all things, can't we just say on Judgment Day, God, whatever sin I committed, whatever horrible thing I've done, I just did what you planned I would do. So how can you blame me? Or the the other side of the coin is, well, if we are free, responsible individuals using our free will apart from any action of God, well, then to what degree can we really say that God is sovereign? Because don't we really like to say, ah, God has planned all things for good? We love that verse. Well, if He's planned all things for our good, if He's planned all things, He has to be sovereign to do that. That means He's sovereign over good things and bad things as well. So how, how do we work this out? Is God sovereign or are we free? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. That there's, there's truth to both. And that's what this verse sums up. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. It was written of Him. It was decreed. It was planned that the Son of Man would go by the betrayal of Judas. That was in the books before it happened. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That that man, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, is fully responsible for what he did. And in fact, what he did was so bad it would have been better if he had never even been born. That's how bad it was. Judas is not going to be able in judgment today to say, hey, don't blame me for portraying Jesus. It was written that I would do it. That will not be persuasive (laughs) 
to God. There, there is a mystery here. There are two things going on. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon once, uh, can you recognize, uh, reconcile God's sovereignty and man's free will? And he said, why, why would I do that? They're friends. You don't reconcile friends. God's sovereignty and free will are friends. They go together. They work together. Now, can I explain exactly how they work together? I mean, there is mystery there. There's a tension for sure, but the Scriptures teach them both. This one verse teaches them both. Verse 21. So, we take comfort in knowing that God is sovereign over all things that, that happen, but never take God's sovereignty as an excuse for you to be irresponsible or neglectful in, in your life. The fact that God is in control does not give you an excuse to not wear a seatbelt or to not have insurance on your house. Hey, if God wants my house to burn down, it's up to Him. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to do anything about it. You don't, no, you need to act responsibly in this world. You have an obligation to do that, even though God is sovereign. So, a little bit of a tangent. Main point here, prepare for, God, for the Lord's Supper with careful self-examination. And then the last thing to consider is to approach the Lord's Supper by faith in Jesus Christ. Approach the supper by faith in Jesus. So, finally, we get here, uh, starting with verse <clears throat> 22 and following, uh, the, the, the exchange of the, the meal here, or the, the uh, bread and the cup. Verse 22, Jesus takes the bread, and uh, <clears throat> he, he says, um, take, well, he, he blesses it, he, he breaks it, and then he says, take, that this is my body. And so here it is. Here, here's the verse that got Luther so agitated. So what did Jesus mean? This, he, he picked up the bread, this is my body. And what Luther said is, okay, that thing right there in his hand is somehow the physical body of Jesus. He didn't accept the Catholic view transubstantiation, but he believed that the physical presence of Christ would always be expected in the Lord's Supper. What did Luther get wrong here? I think what he got wrong is, is this, that uh, although the Lutherans even today, they celebrate the sacrament, in order to properly understand any sacrament is we have to understand that a sacrament is a symbol, it's a sign. That's the very nature of a sacrament. It, it points to something else. We say a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace. It, it's, it's a symbol, and so the sign is always distinguished from the thing signified. That's so important about a sacrament. They're not one and the same. So when Jesus says, this is my body, He's not saying this bread is my literal body. He's saying this is a sign that is pointing to a deeper, greater reality. That is, my body given on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. Same goes for the blood. When Jesus says, this is my blood in verse 24. So, for instance, if I had a, a photograph of Mary and held that up and said, this is my wife, I don't think anybody is thinking that I've made marital vows to a five-by-seven photograph, right? But at the same time, it's totally legitimate for me to say, this is my wife, right? You would understand that. You wouldn't think I was a crazy thing to say, but you also wouldn't think I was married to it. it it's, it's something that is pointing to, to something else. I, I think it's deeper than just a mere symbol or, or sign, but I think that's what Luther is, is missing. Um, we don't expect the physical body of Jesus to be present in the Lord's Supper, but we do expect that Jesus is present, spiritually speaking. 
We believe Jesus will be here spiritually when we… He's here now, but when we come to the Lord's table, He's going to be here in in, in a unique way. And I think one of the ways we can understand that is just by saying that Jesus is the one who's the host of this supper. He's the one distributing the bread, saying, take and eat. He's the one giving the cup and saying, take and drink. He's the host. The host has to be present when you have a meal, right? It'd be very weird, wouldn't it, to go to somebody's house who invited you to the house for dinner and they're not there? (laughs) This is Jesus' supper, and He's the host, and He is there, and He is present and will continue to be present spiritually, not physically, as the supper, the sacrament is observed. But, but here's something else to note. I think this is interesting also. We, we, we notice the, the elements here, the bread and, and the cup. So, I think this is a cup of, of wine. We, we use grape juice here. That's, that's another debate, another discussion. Um, but, but notice that there's only bread and cup here at, at this supper. There's only a bread and a cup. I mean, where's the main course? Where, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And I think, just to quote Tim Keller again, I think he sums this up really well. He says, the lamb's not on the table because the lamb is at the table. The lamb's at the table. And so, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we feed on the Passover lamb, and we feed on Him by faith, and we receive from Him the spiritual nourishment and strength we need to persevere through lives that are hard and filled with struggles and disappointments and challenges and sorrows and pains. Sometimes we want to give up, and sometimes we're just not sure we want to keep following Jesus. Jesus says, come to my table because I want to give you strength. I want you to feed on me. And so, he goes on, verse 24, and uh, acknowledges here that this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. So, this is the inauguration here of the, the new covenant. You look in the Old Testament, you got Abrahamic covenant, Noahic covenant, Davidic covenant, all these covenants in the Old Testament, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. Have all these sacrifices, animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. All these various ceremonies going on in the Old Testament, they're all fulfilled in Jesus, all finding their culmination in Him. And so, a guy named Michael Williams says this, What is new about the new covenant is that the entire covenant story must now be seen in Christ. The people of God are the community of which Christ is the head. The law written upon the heart is the law of Christ. The knowledge of God is communion with Christ. The forgiveness of sins is the costly forgiveness won by Christ. That's the new covenant that we rejoice in and celebrate on this side of the Last Supper. So, we're about to come to the table here. And uh, if all of this seems kind of complex to you, signs and signifying and um, sacraments, and uh, maybe you're not grasping all this, let, let me, I, I'll just say this. I mean, I think this is a kind of a simple way to, to, to say it, and that is that through the Word, we are led to Christ by the ear, but through the sacraments, we're led to Christ by our eyes. That's really the difference. The sacrament is a visible Word. That applies to baptism as well. It's something visible. God is so gracious, He doesn't only speak the gospel, He shows us the gospel. He, he gives us a picture of the gospel in the bread and the cup. The Word proclaimed, 
the Lord's Supper, they both proclaim the gospel, and the proper response to the gospel is faith and repentance. So, as you think about coming to the table here, don't, don't think of this as something that you've got to get yourself good enough to do. That's not the gospel. You know, a lot of people, I think, maybe refrain from coming to the Lord's Supper because they think they're not good enough. I'm not good enough to go to that table. Yeah, you're right. You're not good enough. And you'll never be good enough. And no one's good enough. And I'm not good enough. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus wants you to come to the table anyway. (laughs) Because He wants to commune with you. He wants to encourage you. And He wants to remind you that you belong to Him. Because He, the Passover Lamb, has given Himself for you. So we're going to sing first, and then we'll come to the table. But let me pray. Lord, uh, Your Word indeed is the truth, and we thank You for speaking to us, declaring Your gospel by the audible Word. And Lord, as we prepare to take the supper, we pray that You would equally impress upon us the goodness of the gospel through the visible Word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.